0: I think Sweden is still a little bit of a mystery, right? Because they've had a bad case, but they haven't had a worse case than Italy or Spain um, mm-hmm. yet, and they're mm-hmm. they're not um, or or New York for that matter, um, and yet they haven't had anywhere near the same type of lockdowns that other playbills have. So there, there has been a, a shutdown of their society that's bottom up organized to a degree. Um, but I was wondering to what degree you think it has to do with residential patterns. So my theory. And and I don't there's a hypothesis for my speculation, I should say, um, is that essentially this will spread very slowly in populations that predominantly live alone, you know, versus populations that live in multifamily residences. And yeah. this might explain a lot of the heterogeneity. So are not well, and, in and we know swing- for instance
1: that in Italy, yeah, you know, their screwed up economy which is such that nobody can afford to live in their own apartment until they're in their late thirties. So they yep. live at home with their parents and grandparents that contributed enormously to the explosion of cases there. Um, yeah. I, I think demography, Swing, this is, this is where we kind of go back to what we started off talking about. Where it's, right? like, you can't isolate any single factor. I mean, I think, there's a single factor that's playing a huge role in Southeast Asia, but in the rest of the world, like it's a combination of all of these things. It's a combination of blood type. So, you know, we see these results where it's like, Oh, if you have type O blood, then you're resistant. No, you're not resistant. You just have a slightly lower risk of going to the hospital. If you catch it, Mm -hmm. Um, that's not the single solution to this. And you know, if you lose (laughs) weight, that's not the single solution to this. And if you're under the age of 50, that's not the single solution to this because there are healthy triathletes that crash and burn in their twenties. Yeah, Um, You know, it's a combination of all sorts of factors in the West. What we're witnessing is what happened when the Europeans arrived in the Americas and a, an immunologically naive population was introduced to, you know, old world diseases Mm. and, There, I'm sure if you had been able to access the Johns Hopkins chart of the spread of smallpox (laughs) in, in, you know, Central America in the Mm -hmm. 1500s, you know, there would be all sorts of theories about why it was happening. Um, And I think that's kind of what we're witnessing.
0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So, if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week we're bringing our second half of my conversation with uh, Spencer Wells. So if you follow the first half, you know Spencer Wells is an extraordinarily intelligent man, a uh, man with a wealth of experience in uh, population genetics and genomics, um, even in virology and immunology with a lot to say about geopolitics and history. Uh, so it's been a fascinating conversation so far. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Before I get into what this conversation is about though, we need to make an incredibly important announcement. So on uh, last Friday, we announced the Embodied Movement Summit. So we mentioned this in an earlier podcast, but it is now out, you can find it, it is in the link below, and it is going off like crazy. People are going uh, just crazy for this event. It, it's We've had the biggest response we've ever had to anything we've put out. Tickets are just disappearing. Um, so we're incredibly pleased. Um, And, you know, I've had conversations like 20 conversations the last day with all the speakers as we're getting ready and kind of getting everyone on the same page. Um, And I just cannot tell you how excited I am about this. We've got Kelly Stratt. We've got Nick Winkleman. We've got uh, John Verveke. We've got Sebastian Foucault, We've got some of the best parkour guys, some of the best movement thinkers, some of the best meditation guys. Um, It's it's all over the place. Um, You can check it out below. You can click over, see all the speakers. Um, it's, it's going to be an absolutely amazing event. Um, we are really focusing on this idea that we need to embed as much meaning in our movement practice so that the movement practice can get us the greatest benefits. And so it's as sustainable as possible because most people, maybe they pursue sport and that's meaningful for a while. If you're, you know, very talented and and naturally competitive, um, but eventually that's exhausted. And for most people, the exercise paradigm is not meaningful. Um, and now movements come along and parkour and these things are, are giving people avenues toward these kind of infinite games where there's skills that you can keep developing that you can go on forever with in some ways. Um, but we think we can go even deeper. And this group of people are some of the deepest thinkers on these issues and the way they're all coming together to share these thoughts, um, you're, you're just going to be amazed by it. So if you're interested, make sure to click that link below. So anyways, back to this week's podcast, uh, Spencer Wells and I are gonna go into his theory of why there might be herd immunity in Southeast Asia and what that has to do with pangolins and horseshoe bats and what that tells us about what we might expect from COVID-19 going forward. Also, we're gonna talk about you know, maybe a worst case scenario. So it's quite an interesting kind of deep dive into thinking about the evolution of the virus what might come from it and where we might find some hope and how the situation could be fixed. So if you're interested in that, stick around. Um, it's a f- another fascinating conversation. So without further ado, my second, second half of my conversation with Spencer Wells.
1: The world we see today is, is it's kind of like if you took a really complicated drawing on an etch a sketch and then shook it up mm-hmm. and you see like little outlines of what was there before, but we, we have no concept we know, for instance, from ancient DNA work that, you know, I've done with colleagues in Denmark and other places, that ninety percent of the genetic lineages in the Americas were wiped out in the Colombian Exchange. Ninety percent.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've read uh, 1491 and 1493, yep. I think are two yep. of the best books that anyone can read. And I actually think that they help me a lot in understanding and, and kind of being having the right set of priors. To comprehend what was going to happen with coronavirus, right? mm-hmm. like I think that one of the reasons why so many people um, are resistant to this is because they just don't have any, they don't have any mental reference for what pandemics were like and how much they drove history.
1: Absolutely, I mean, listen. One of the the books that I read as an undergraduate that had You know, the strongest effect on my my view of human evolutionary history, but particularly human history, um, was Plagues and Peoples by William McNeil. Okay. And he makes a very compelling case for why, you know, pandemic diseases have driven so much of human history. And so Mm -hmm. many of these events that, you know, on the surface, if you really don't know that much about history, seem random and disconnected. Like if you look, underneath the surface, there's often a disease that's connecting these events.
0: Yeah, uh, I, was, I was talking about this on a recent podcast with, with, um, with sexuality, right? I think that people really underestimate how much the sexual mores in a society depend on the venereal diseases in a society. So yep. we have this idea of Europe as having this extraordinarily straight-laced, re- repressive sexual culture. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's obviously it's harder to to know for sure, but if you look at traditional folk songs it look like Chaucer's Tales, um despite Those are what the bawdy. Ch- Yeah, despite the what the that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah despite what you saw in the you know the the church culture, it seems to me like the average peasant really wasn't wasn't too bothered by it in in you say, you know, the eleven hundreds. Yeah. But once syphilis hits. And like people are going crazy from it all of a sudden. It's like, well, that's that's the Victorian period. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. I don't well, think people and, and recognize syphilis, that. Syphilis is
1: really interesting because syphilis still hasn't been solved. Yeah. Okay. I don't know where um, it came from. Well, exactly. I mean, it's closely related to things that have different symptoms in old world populations. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it could have been a mutation that shifted suddenly and allowed it to be transmitted sexually and, you know, spirochete bacteria are really nasty. I I nearly died from Lyme disease. um, I've had Lyme disease as well. Which is another spirochete. It infected my heart and I had a complete heart block and I was in the cardiac care unit for four days with a heart rate of around 15 to 20 beats a minute, but it was random. And, you know, the heart line was the EKG was off the charts and crazy, but um, spirochetes are weird And so, you know, it's possible that that was just a random mutation It's also possible it was picked up from the Americas You know, because it happened mm-hmm. around that time Yeah, And so yeah, that's been perfect. a huge debate You know, and ancient DNA is going to solve this eventually And, you know, there have been reports of You know, oh, we found a spirochete in pre-1500 bones from, you know, Ecuador Things like that um, But the jury's still out Um, But I think you're right there. I mean, like that came along suddenly Um, around the time of kind of it was it was before Voltaire, but Voltaire wrote about that. And you're right. It did shift like cultural norms um, in the same way that HIV did for Gen X. You know, I'm a Gen X. i am a general Xer. I was born in 1969. I was, you know, starting to think about becoming sexually active in the early 80s. And that was right around the time when AIDS was like, okay, you have sex and you're going to die. And so like that had a huge impact on my generation. It was like, oh my God. Cause remember we were coming out of our parents like wanton, crazy orgies, like, mm-hmm. you know, my parents were relatively straight laced, but still like some of the shit that went on like in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like, It's no wonder that HIV would have taken hold in that kind of a a situation. And so, you know, our generation was suddenly like, whoa, okay. And then, of course, we have Reagan telling us to just say no and, like, say no to drugs and all this other stuff. And so the 80s were a very straight-laced culture in comparison to the 60s and 70s.
0: It's funny. Like, I I, I made that connection about about sexual mores. But just as we're talking, it occurs to me, like, that's you know there, i'm sure there's other causation right it's complex it's, a, it's complex not complicated but there's a whole shift to the right in the culture in general in that period yeah. right there's the moral majority there's yep. you know the new dawn of america um yep. and well, I
1: mean, that's that's how reagan won the election and it ultimately i i've been making notes on a blog post on this for like 2 months now and i just haven't had time to write it but no, I mean, listen, it, my father's side of the family, part of it, part of it is from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but his mother's side, so my grandmother on my father's side of the family, comes from Mississippi. And, you know, her father was the first board certified cardiologist in the state of Mississippi. He was the county doctor, blah, blah, blah. But they lived in the Deep South for a long period of time. And they had, we had family members who were in the Mississippi legislature and blah, blah, blah. And if you had said to anybody in my Mississippi family in the 1960s, all of you were going to be voting Republican in a generation, they would have fucking lapped you out of the room because Mm -hmm. that was 99% Democrat. Because remember, the Republicans were the party of the Yep. (laughs) And so, you know, those are the yellow dog Democrats. But what shifted, you know, with the Vietnam era and with the baby boomers um, and the uncertainty that that introduced into American society in the same way that I think we're seeing that level of uncertainty. Now, a lot of people have drawn parallels with 1968. Um, The, the, the Southern conservative religious groups, which historically have been democratic started to align with Nixon and Nixon did not actively court this. He didn't need to. Nixon was an old school like Greenwich Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, But Reagan and his advisors were smart enough to notice this. And so in order to clinch the 1980 election, which they won resoundingly, I mean, they got like 95% of the electoral college votes. um, They cut a deal with the moral majority, as you said, And that's when everything shifted in the South and everybody went from being completely Democrat to being completely Republican. Yeah. And that is one of the most genius political moves of all time for Reagan, you know, well done for recognizing that him and his advisors. But unfortunately it introduced a new dynamic into the Republican party, which I think we have seen the apotheosis of in Trump Um. Because it's basically anti-elitist, anti-education, very working class, um, very religious. And, you know, it's, it's led to, in my opinion, the ultimate downfall of the Republican Party. I mean, we're seeing the splintering of that party now. Um, well, I think when, that
0: it's mirrored on the left, though. Wouldn't you agree? It,
1: it is. It, it's, of course it is. But, I mean, when you've got George W. Bush and Mitt Mm -hmm. Romney and people like that coming out and saying they're not going to vote for a sitting Republican president. Like that's pretty freaking serious.
0: Trump is an outlier, you know, um, (laughs) for how, how terrible he is. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's this concept in, in sports of like wins above replacement. So I started thinking (laughs) about politicians, like what's your wins above replacement for a politician or value of a replacement player. Yeah. And you know, I think that uh that that Trump is a, is an outlier in his negative impact. Um I mean, it, it's it's definitely destabilized everything. But on the on the flip side, you know, I'm in Seattle right now and we've got the uh Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone right now and these these protests and cop cars being burned and um that seems very unstable to me as well. It is.
1: I, it is. It's it's the craziest time I've ever seen in, in America. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the the weird thing is like, okay, so America has gone through three existential crises Mm -hmm. in the last 20 years. And I haven't been in the country for any of them. (laughs) It's gone through three. 9-11, I was living in the UK. And I remember the moment distinctly because um, I was writing my book, Journey of Man. And I was writing the chapter on the migration to Australia. And so I'm sitting at my laptop and I listen to the BBC in the background because I like to have noise on music Mm -hmm. or like talk radio, whatever news. And so I was listening to BBC news in the background and I'm typing along and I hear a plane has crashed into the world trade center and I stopped typing and I'm like, what the, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I, I, my initial reaction was this is like war of the worlds. Like this Mm -hmm. is some Mm -hmm. sort of piece of performance art. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, the, they're they're just pulling the wool over our eyes and, like, it's all going to be a joke in the end. And so I went downstairs and I turned on the television and I saw the first plane having hit the World Trade Center and I was like, oh, my God. Oh my. So it was so strange watching that as an American outside the U.S. And then in 2008, um, you know, when the bank started going under and the financial crisis hit. I happened to be traveling in Russia and Central Asia. I was doing research for another book. And, you know, I, I would occasionally see little snippets. You know, everything was, you know, dubbed in Russian and my Russian is so-so, so I could get some of it. But, you know, it would be like, you know, this bank has gone under and unemployment's like shooting up. And I'm like, what the hell is going on right now? and so that was bizarre, and now this, like, you know, we, I didn't, I live in Austin, or lived in Austin, Texas. My wife and I have a travel business. I mean, one of the things that I had the opportunity to do when I was in the National Geographic resident was design private jet trips, and so, yeah, it's very sexy, blah, 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 but, you know, there are lots of, downsides i.e like you've got 80 plus people and you're mostly in a nice bus trip um so you know we have a small boutique company that does you know very small trips on things like the gulf stream 550 and we led our first trip through indonesia um you know in, in march and so that's part of the reason i was really carefully monitoring this because i had to reassure all of our guests that they were going to be safe. And they were, and they made it home safely and they loved it. and We have, you know, clients for life, but no, I mean, we were over here and I was watching what was going on in the U S and I'm like, we're not going back there. Like this is, this is going to get so bad there so quickly because they just don't get how serious it is. And so that's the reason we ended up staying in Indonesia. And yeah. you know, it was the right call. It really was. I have to tell you.
0: Yeah, I definitely am, have a certain level of envy. There's uh, <laughs> <But, laughs> part of me, but, it, you know, but it's there's always this thing about we're it.
1: like you know, oh, we can go anywhere. You know, we're rich and we can fly off to some private island in Indonesia. No, I mean we happen to be here, yeah, and it was yeah. just a question of like, realistically, where do we think we are going to be safer, in Indonesia or in America? And most people would have said America, and I said mm-hmm. no. Like, I've been tracking this, and I I know what America's going to do, and I know what Trump's going to do in particular, and we're going to stay here. And we made the right call.
0: Yeah. I remember when this first started, I was very concerned about what would happen in the third world. I figured we'd, you know, in the first world, we'd figure it out. And we have lots of beds. We have lots of ventilators, relatively. And, you know, we have state capacity. Mm -hmm. So I thought. (laughs) Yeah. But... That's not how it's played out in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think, you know, things look really bad in Latin America right now. I mean, I, the the excess mortality rates in Ecuador are crazy. Or um, not Ecuador, Brazil, uh, Colombia. Brazil. Colombia. Argentina
1: is shooting up as well. I yeah. mean, literally, Mexico. the entire Western hemisphere is, is scary as hell. Yeah. Um, and Europe, of course, has already gone through their phase. We'll see if there's a second wave there. But, you know... I don't know that they can take much more in Europe, quite frankly. Like they were so heavily battered by this first wave. Um, No, I mean, like the entire Western world seems to have been slammed by this. Yeah. And then then you've got Laos with like a dozen cases and no deaths. And like they're open and everybody's going to markets again. And like it's business as usual. It's crazy.
0: Okay. (laughs) So sticking on the Corona thing for a second. Um, you've talked about the idea that there's some pre-existent herd immunity. So I, I have a couple there questions about be. that. There yeah. has to be. So if that's the case, um, that might be good news about the idea that herd immunity is possible, right? Because people have been talking about, oh, we'll just go to herd immunity. But my understanding was a lot of epidemiologists were saying, wait, um, we can't be certain that that's going to work because we um, don't know. But, but, if- but it, herd immunity
1: is a complicated thing. So yeah. think back to that mononucleosis Epstein-Barr mm. virus discussion
0: yeah yeah.
1: We yeah, yeah. So 95% of the Western world, so Europe and America, mm. um, have been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah. And so they're immune. Some of them had a really nasty case of mononucleosis. Some of them might have gone sterile, or they might have had brain damage as a result. Like if you catch it in your 30s, oh my God. It's devastating. Yeah. But if you catch it when you're two, you might have a cough. You, you, you might have a sore throat. You like you might not even notice it. Herd immunity is best built up in early childhood. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think Southeast Asia has had. They, okay. They've been lucky to have either this particular virus or a virus that is so closely related to it that it's providing that same level of herd immunity. At a high enough rate, I and mean, we listen. Well,
0: it can't have been If I same had thing. to
1: guess, I would say it's mm-hmm. this virus, simply because it's so infectious. Yeah, it's hard to imagine another coronavirus that wouldn't have been picked up prior to now. But I, why- I think that, that that something close to this or this virus has been circulating in rural populations in Southeast Asia, and. For people who have moved to cities in the last 30 to 35 years, they've retained that herd immunity. Mm-hmm. But places like Singapore that have been heavily urbanized since the 1960s have mm-hmm. no herd immunity. And that's the reason they're the hardest hit in the world. They have more mm-hmm. cases per million population than the U.S. does. More it's than almost all
0: within their, uh, their and, migrant worker population. And though, that is it?
1: the reason why Wuhan was the perfect city for this to emerge in, because unlike all the other Chinese cities in Southern China that have all been created by moving peasants out of the countryside into urban environments in the last oh, 20 to 25 years, Wuhan has been urban since you know 1500 BC.
0: <laughs> okay, so I have a question about that though, because if Singapore is where this is worst, but it's moving primarily through their migrant population. Isn't that migrant population mostly made up of people from rural areas of surrounding, uh, a lot surrounding? of them,
1: a lot of them are actually from cities because it's okay. the people in, in the cities that have the skills that people mm-hmm. in other cities want. Okay. And so they're coming, they're coming from places like Kuala Lumpur, um, and Bangkok and Hong Kong and, you know, other places that, You know, these are domestic workers, primarily. They're not farm workers. And so, you (laughs) know, I've called this disease, and I called this a long time ago before I even started to formulate this theory, but I called it kind of the revenge of the peasants Mm -hmm. because, you know, rural, tropical peasants are doing the best in this pandemic. They're doing so much better than urban Western peasants. Populations mm-hmm. like it's except no,
0: one, right? What about Japan? Right, how does Japan well, and, and so
1: Japan Japan is, is an unknown? Um, you know, I, I'm i curious to see how Japan fares as they start to open up.
0: Um, they, they never really closed down, did they? they I mean, I thought well, the subways but, were but, open, but listen, restaurants Japanese were open.
1: Culture is, is relatively reserved anyway. Yes. if you've spent any time in Japan, it's you know, they're not effusive the way a lot of other Asian populations are like, you know, I've hung out a lot with, you know, Chinese colleagues and gotten drunk with them and gone to restaurants and like everybody's patting each other on the back and blah, blah, blah. The Japanese tend to be a little more reserved. Certainly when they're out in public, you know, they, they, they tend to kind of stick to themselves. On the other hand, you know, they have these subway systems where there are people who are employed to pack people in. And so, yeah. you know, I don't know what's going to happen to Japan. Japan's a bit of an unknown, just like India is. Um, and and the reason India is an unknown for me is, OK, so it's it's per million population infection rate is at the moment comparable to Indonesia. So it's pretty low. It's around 100 um, versus 6000 for the U.S., 6,000 for Singapore, um, 5,000 for the UK, 5,000 for Spain. Um, So, I mean, those are the stark differences when you look at the, you know, per capita infection rate. Um, And that's why I think there's something real there. That's not just down to testing differences or even fudging the numbers, which the Indians are certainly doing. But, you know, the, the big question for me with India is, okay, so it's technically within this Southeast Asian pangolin belt. Um it's got a species that, you know, I, I've been studying the phylogeny. There was a paper that was luckily published a couple of years ago on this. And it's close enough, you know, the pangolin that it occurs there is close enough that, you know, potentially it could be harboring the same sorts of viruses. Um the question for me is like, what happens in India? Like Mm -hmm. is it, it does seem as I would predict that it's mostly the cities like Delhi is being slammed by this and Mumbai is being slammed by this. And, you know, it's that intergenerational urban dweller that, you know, is most at risk of this thing. Um, You know, what I really want to know is if we could get granularity in those numbers, if we could see the numbers out in the countryside, like, are we seeing a much lower infection rate? a much lower morbidity rate. I would predict that we are, but I don't know. So that's a big unknown. And Japan is another one, it's, it's another one. But on the other hand, listen, it could just be early days. It could be yeah. that Japan's the next Sweden.
0: So um, one thing that I've been thinking about is with regards to coronavirus is the idea that it seems to spread really predominantly indoors. When you're in yep. close contact for a prolonged period of time with somebody you're who is breathing, times more
1: likely to catch it yeah. indoors.
0: So, also and there's it spreads,
1: a, it, it, it's aerosolized. Yeah, so it can float around for up to 45 minutes, and it can be spread through air conditioning
0: systems. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that, the hell out of that in HVAC the- uh, <laughs> with the HVAC um, restaurant study where people who yep. were downwind of the HVAC got yep. infected and people who weren't didn't yep. get infected. So I think Sweden is still a little bit of a mystery, right? Because they've had a bad case, but they haven't had a worse case than Italy or Spain um, mm-hmm. yet. And they're mm-hmm. they're not, um, or, or New York for that matter. Um, and yet they haven't had anywhere near the same type of lockdowns that other playbillists have. There there has been a, a shutdown of their society that's bottom-up organized to a degree. Um, but I was wondering to what degree you think it has to do with residential patterns. So my theory, and, and I don't, there's a hypothesis my speculation, I should say, um, is that essentially this will spread very slowly in populations that predominantly live alone, you know, mm-hmm. Versus populations that live in multifamily residences. And th- yeah. this might explain a lot of the heterogeneity. So are well, not. And, and we know, for instance,
1: that in Italy, yeah, you know, their screwed up economy, which is such that nobody can afford to live in their own apartment until they're mm-hmm. in their late 30s. So they yep. live at home with their parents and grandparents. That contributed enormously to the explosion of cases there. Um, Yeah. I I think demography, this is, this is where we kind of go back to what we started off talking about. You can't isolate any single factor. I mean, I think there's a single factor that's playing a huge role in Southeast Asia, but in the rest of the world, like it's a combination of all of these things. It's a combination of blood type. So, you know, We see these results where it's like, oh, if you have type O blood, then you're resistant. No, you're not resistant. You just have a slightly lower risk of going to the hospital if you catch it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the single solution to this. And, you know, if you lose (laughs) weight, that's not the single solution to this. And if you're under the age of 50, that's not the single solution to this because there are healthy triathletes that crash and burn in their 20s. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a combination of all sorts of factors in the West. What we're witnessing is what happened when the Europeans arrived in the Americas and a an immunologically naive population was introduced to, you know, old world diseases. Mm -hmm. And there I'm sure if you had been able to access the Johns Hopkins chart of the spread of smallpox (laughs) <laughs> in, in, you know, Central America in the <laughs> 1500s, you know, there would be all sorts of theories about yeah. why it was happening. Um, so, and I think that's kind of what we're witnessing.
0: So I have another question, which is, so there, there, there seems to be a number of studies that indicate that transmission from children to adults is relatively uncommon. But there are other studies that show that children, even though they're largely asymptomatic, are, uh, are shedding viral load just as much as adults. And I was wondering if, you know, if it's plausible that basically this has to do with the volume of aerosol that a child produces versus the volume of aerosol that an adult produces and also where that aerosol is distributed. So if my, my two year old, right, she's breathing out, she's breathing a much lower, lower volume of air. So it's going to take longer for her to get enough virus out to create an infectious dose. Do you think that's a plausible idea?
1: It it's, it's certainly plausible. Absolutely. I mean, listen, it, none of this is magic. Yeah. You know, infectious diseases are physical entities that transmit using mechanisms that we understand scientifically. We know exactly how this virus works. We know why it attacks the tissues it attacks. Mm-hmm. We know the receptor that it uses to get into the cells and replicate. We have a pretty good idea of why there are sex differences, and part of it has to do with the fact that women have two X chromosomes and men only have one, Um, and there are a lot of immune system-related genes on the X chromosome. You know, the basic biology is pretty well understood, and so that is entirely plausible. On the other hand, (laughs) uh, I would not go so far at this point to say that children can't serve as vectors because... Listen, I, I have two daughters. Um, mm-hmm. Mine are now grown up. I'm at the other end of that journey that you're just starting yeah. out on if you have a two-year-old. So yeah. I mine are 18 and 20. Um, and I can tell you that when they were three, oh, four, five. St- yeah. Like, dude, like they came home sick all the time. And I've never caught so many colds and flus and, you know, weird, random respiratory diseases. And... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think is that children can serve as vectors to, you know, adults. Um, you know, it's, it's really a question of exposure. And as you say, you know, it might have something to do with viral load. Um, you know, the jury's still out. And I think there are a lot of very speculative, non-peer-reviewed studies that are coming out yeah. right now. I mean, remember that everything you're seeing in MedArchive... Has yeah. not been peer reviewed.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a couple more coronavirus questions. Um, I think that, you know, people talk a lot about the IFR. And I think, you know, IFR and r not like, I think they're probably a lot more, there's probably some variability, right? So depending on the health of, the, and the age structure of the population, like if oh, your age yeah. structure uh, of your population IFR is mostly is baby boomers, specific. right, is going to be IFR a lot higher.
1: individual specific. That's the reason yeah. we need to create this.
0: Yeah, because so, IFR,
1: it, it, IFR. If you are a seventy-five-year-old with type two diabetes and existing pulmonary problems, your IFR is probably fifteen percent, 80% percent, eighty
0: percent. Okay, eighty percent. Okay, yeah. Jeez.
1: If if you if you are a young woman age seventeen, you know, physically active, normal or thin body weight, your IFR is probably point 0.1%.
0: And real briefly, so people have been talking about, oh, this is just like the flu, right? And the idea is that the, you know, the flu kills 30,000 to 60,000 people per year. And if you derive the IFR, then, you know, it's, it's, I guess, uh, a 10th of a percent right it's 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 a 10th of what of what the yeah. 1% is but my understanding is that that's a speculative ifr too right like that's that's a that's a model and it might even be lower than that um, so what what do you know about that how does the ifr of flu actually compare like what are the hard numbers because uh, the models for, for flu, flu, flu are not that strong
1: flu varies yeah. um, and and this is this is why the flu vaccine is not effective. Yeah. Um, it's moderately effective if you're lucky. And so I've talked about, you know, do you know how flu vaccine is developed? Yeah, every... yeah, I'm aware yeah. of that. So the know, the WHO they try to Geneva, project. they project because scaling up the production of hundreds of millions of doses of flu vaccine so you can go to your Walgreens or your CVS and get it, you know, in November takes time. I mean that that ain't trivial. So as mm-hmm. soon as we have a viable vaccine for this, that's even thirty percent effective or forty percent effective, scaling that up for the number of people who are going to want to get it is going to take people. a while. It's yeah. not going to happen overnight. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, so so flu is flu is a multitude of viruses mm-hmm. that are all you know collected into this you know influenza species viral species i guess you can call it but you know collection of viral strains and they can vary enormously in their ifr um, as we know you know 1918 flu pandemic is very different from whatever was circulating in 2017. Um, and you know so guessing of those strains is difficult And that's the reason why the flu vaccine varies from ten to sixty percent, you know, effectiveness. So, given the transmissibility, the attack rate, um, or the R naught, which is related to the attack rate, of these different flu strains, you know, maybe sixty percent is enough to provide herd immunity. Mm -hmm. I don't think sixty percent is enough to provide herd immunity to this disease, though. This. this, the transmission rate, the, the attack rate on this thing, is among the highest I've ever seen in any virus that hasn't already had a vaccine developed. I mean, measles is the highest. Measles, is way higher, yeah. yeah. Um, and but you know, because it was way higher, it was like we've got to a-, <laughs> a vaccine for this. Yeah. Um, this is pretty damn high, though. You know, so, there's a reason why on cruise ships like 80% of people come down with this. Mm -hmm. This is not like polio. This is Mm -hmm. way, way higher than polio. This is way higher than, you know, a typical flu
0: infection. Or cold, Cold. right? Yeah. Um,
1: And so, you know, we've got to figure out a way to develop something that gets us up to 70, 80, 90% herd immunity if the vaccine's going to be effective. And okay. the way forward, I think, is, you know, the, the statistical work I've been doing on Southeast Asian populations. I mean, if there is a cowpox here, I mean, think mm-hmm. back to Edward Jenner's development of the smallpox vaccine. And he noticed, I mean, Jenner, lots of people knew for a long time that if you infected people with smallpox, like if you inoculated them and they got a minor version of the disease, they wouldn't catch it again. Like they understood immunity. That was pretty mm-hmm. simple. That's not his insight. His insight was um, the, the women who milked cattle for get you know, milk um, and were exposed to a disease that they had on their udders known as cowpox never caught smallpox. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he scraped the pustules from the infected cow udders and he infected a few people. And he noticed that they also didn't catch smallpox. If you can find a living virus like that, if, if, if it's not this virus that's creating some sort of herd immunity in places like Laos and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, if it's something closely related that is not nearly as deadly and still provides that level of herd immunity, that's the magic bullet. You know, that's yeah. the cowpox. And, you know, it'll be worth a fortune. It'll win a Nobel Prize, blah, blah, blah. But more importantly, it'll save tens of millions of lives over the next few years. Um, you know, that's the gold standard. If, if you can find a live virus that replicates like a, a live virus in your body, but doesn't cause mm-hmm. serious disease, that's when your immune system goes back to that kind of childlike state and you know, it really kicks in and you create long-term immunity. It's the, it's the reason why, you know, being infected with chickenpox is better than getting a chickenpox vaccine. Um, You know, live viruses just, they, they, they kick your immune system into hyperdrive and they cause the generation of all of the varieties of B cells that generate the antibodies that are going to provide the long-term immunity in a way that, you know, simple, like protein, you know, chunks that are presented as antigens won't do. Um, You know, you can get lucky sometimes and, you know, the viruses that you're immunizing against don't evolve. But in general, like, a live attenuated virus is the best way to immunize against something.
0: Well, I'm glad you have a hopeful message because <laughs> I've seen some not no, so I hopeful ones from you. Uh, and,
1: and I'm actually very excited about this. I mean, it's, I think it's scientifically fascinating. I also think it can save everybody's lives. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's really something that just come out of looking at these statistics and, you know, again, like, If you had asked me in late January, what are the countries that are going to be hardest hit by this thing? I would have said Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia. What are the the countries that have been the least hard hit by this? Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia. It's just like it's a complete upside down pattern. And so there has to be some explanation there. and, And I'm trying to figure out what that is.
0: So I saw a paper that said that there might be a pre-existing immunity that could be up to 40 to 60% of the population from coronaviruses. Was that specific to Southeast Asia? I I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, or was that something that that they were saying was circulating more widely? There hasn't
1: been a lot of work done in Southeast Asia. I mean, listen, I'll be honest with you. I've lived and worked in some pretty gnarly places all over the world, more than 100 countries. Mm-hmm. I've caught, in, caught, caught you know very strange diseases that are inexplicable and probably were a coronavirus in some cases, in places like Chad and Uzbekistan. Um, I feel like I'm immune to this thing. Like, I feel like all the travel mm-hmm. I've done over the last few months in this part of the world, I've been exposed to it, and I haven't gotten sick once. I'm, I'm as healthy as I've ever been. Mm-hmm. I haven't been sick since last fall had a cold in like September nice. or something. But no, I mean, I, I think there is pre-existing immunity. My wife, um, the part of the reason I think that, and this is, <laughs> this is just a little bit of a personal anecdote. So um, when I was teaching at NYU Abu Dhabi a year and a half ago in January, um, my wife came over halfway through and we spent the last weekend that we were in the country Um, at a resort, the Qasr al-Sarab resort down in the empty quarter. So it's right on the Saudi border. And the last thing we did the night before we left was we went on a sunset camel ride. And my dear wife, who's, you know, very loving and, you know, she's INFJ to my ENTJ, um, she snuggled with the camels, um, (laughs) several of them at the end of this in the sunset. And we got home and about a week later she came down with the worst flu she'd ever had. And it got worse and worse. Okay. And she went to the doctor twice and her blood oxygen levels were dropping to a point where the doctor actually called me. This was just her you know, personal physician called me and said, listen, you have to pick her up because her blood O2 levels are so low that she can't drive. She might black out and you need to take her to the emergency room. And so you know I took her in and I you know I was talking with the emergency room doctors who were very cocky the way that you know a lot of American doctors tend to be. And I was like, you should probably be wrapping down this room we're in right now because I think she's been exposed to MERS. I think she has MERS. And they said, "What's MERS?" <laughs> I'm sure they know what MERS is now. But I said, go search the CDC website because it's 30% fatal and it's highly contagious. Um, so we're pretty sure that she had that. I have a sample that's sitting in a freezer in a friend's lab in Houston that we haven't sequenced yet, but, you know, it would only be the second or third case of MERS ever described in a, a North American. Cause you know, it's a pretty rare thing to catch. You have to like essentially do what she was doing, cuddle up to camels um, to yeah, catch yeah. it. But you know, we had close contact, you know, throughout this whole process. And I never came down with any symptoms. So I just feel like I have some kind of immunity to coronaviruses in general. I I wouldn't want to test it out. Like I wouldn't want to like stand in a room with people who were infected coughing on my face, but you know, I just, I I think there is herd immunity. I think there is some kind of herd immunity and figuring that out is going to be the solution to this.
0: I'm glad you see a solution. Um, let me ask one more coronavirus question, which is about morbidity, right? So morbidity this has been, everyone's talking about
1: this.
0: Morbidity is yeah, scary everyone's talking thing. about everyone's talking about the IFR, talking about the R naught, and then there's this idea 80% of the people who get it, who who know that they get it, have a mild case but I'm seeing you know, case reports from people who are saying, I've never been this sick. I'm sick for months afterwards. We're seeing yep. neurological impact, impacts on the testicles, impacts on, on any yep. number of systems. And um, what I haven't seen until quite recently is any estimate of what percentage of the people who get it have some kind of morbidity. I recently saw something that said 5%. So I'm curious if you, if you know how solid that number is and also what's the age distribution of that? Like if you're 30 years old or, you know, the 17 year old fit female that you're talking about, okay, you don't have to worry about dying, but do you have to worry about having like, you know, permanent lung damage and ground glass opacity in your lungs?
1: Yeah. I mean, the morbidity is what scares me much more than the mortality in this. Um, It's the reason why this has had such a huge impact on the world economy. Um, You know, a disease that literally had, you know, a random mortality rate of 1% where people caught it and they just dropped dead wouldn't have had this sort of impact. But this disease, you know, the people who die, die in a slow, drawn out, painful fashion in hospitals, using up tremendous resources. I mean, oh my God, I couldn't even begin to imagine paying out of pocket for going into the hospital in the U S with this, if you have a nasty case Mm -hmm. and survived, I mean, it must be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, That's the impact that's really going to affect things. And, you know, the numbers I've heard are that as many as 15% of, you know, people who are infected will need some sort of hospitalization um, and may have some long-term effects. That's what worries me, you know, so it, If, as seems to be the case, the U.S. is unwilling to do a proper lockdown when the second wave hits, which it started to do now, Um, and I don't think they're going to, and honestly, I don't think they should for various evolutionary reasons, because I think they could create a superbug if they did, but, you know, they're going to go for herd immunity, and so, okay, again, we're talking 1% IFR, that's 3.3 million people, but it's the, you know, 30 to 45 million people who are going to need to be hospitalized in that process that really freaked me out because there aren't that many ventilators on the planet. You couldn't even begin to scale up ventilator production to deal with that many people going into the hospital. That's what's going to be apocalyptic. It's not the deaths. It's, it's, it's the people who are going to need medical care to survive and won't be able to get it. And that's when the IFR is going to tick up, by the way, because IFR is dependent yeah. on access to decent healthcare. And if that goes away, if if your healthcare system is overwhelmed, and by the way, last week before things really started to tick up, the largest healthcare system in Arizona was already overwhelmed in terms of access to ventilators. Yeah. Um. What's that's coming in, in Jupiter, right? What, what What's coming in July and August? is going to be something that the U S has never seen in its history. And, you know, I, I've been trying to tell people this for a while and everybody's like, you're being alarmist and, you know, and I hope I'm wrong. You know, if I'm wrong, I just end up looking like an idiot. (laughs) But if I'm right, we're going to see something that no one's ever seen before in a country as rich as America.
0: So, I've tended to, th- to think about it like, you know, um, Tyler Cohen had this idea of the base raters versus the, the you know, the, um, what's that, the, the, the exponential people, right? Like you're looking at it and saying, oh, my prior is that, you know, flu acts this way, other colds act this way, it'll probably revert back to acting this way. So that's the base rater, right? And then the exponential is, but it has this potential, right? And so my attitude has been, there's probably a good chance that the base rate case happens, but the risk of the exponential function is so high, and it's even even if it's like 60% likelihood that that it mutates to a less nasty version, and you know, and it turns out that you know that 30, you know that that 300% more people are getting it than we're seeing. Um, if there's a 40% likelihood or a 10% likelihood that that the IFR is higher than we've seen, as was the case with SARS, right? With SARS, they while it was happening, they thought the um, the IFR was three, and it turns out it was 10% once they accounted mm-hmm. for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to behave as if that's what's going to happen. So I'm curious, like, or do you see this as just deterministic? It is. It is now we know enough that we know it's going to go the bad way, or is there still a substantial chance that that? That what's happening in Sweden, for instance, is an indication that it won't necessarily go the worst way, and there is a chance it was going to play out
1: in a better way. But the curves that have come out in the last few days are absolutely clear. There is a second wave that's already begun, and it turns out California, of all places, like you know, we like to think California is really you know advanced and modern and you know, on top of this sort of shit. Um, California never actually left the first wave. California has been in a continuous wave. (laughs) Um, Texas actually was starting to get things under control, but, you know, Greg Abbott just really wants people to get back into those restaurants and offices. Um, You know, people are making decisions on the basis of how they get reelected um and americans vote with their pocketbooks and so when no they they are and and americans vote with their pocketbooks and so when the economy tanks politicians sitting politicians who you know are in charge of that tend to lose the election and so you know elections are coming up this fall and so everybody i hate to be cynical about it but you know that's what's driving a lot of this if this were happening a year ago i think we'd be making a lot more clear-headed decisions as a society. Um, but it's happening in 2020. Um, this is the perfect storm. Um, I hate to I say it, like, I know as a scientist that this virus was not created and released on purpose in order to do what it's done and is doing and will continue to do. But if you were going to create <laughs> the perfect pathogen, to wreak havoc <laughs> in a place like the U.S. or Europe, this is what you would create. You would create something that the the fatality rate wasn't so scary. It's not like Ebola. Like if we had Ebola flaming around mm-hmm. the U.S. right now, people would be like, "I'm not coming out a of my freaking house for anything." Like, I don't care if I never make another penny in my life. Like, I don't want to. Ca- I don't want to bleed out of my eyeballs. Okay, like I'm not doing that. Um, yeah. On the other hand, you know, if it had a 0.1%, like a flu-like IFR, people would just ignore it. They'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay, so it's, it's another flu. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bad one and it's a nasty one, but we'll just incorporate it into, you know, our repertoire and we'll get used to it. But it's right at that level where it's like it's scary enough, particularly in certain demographics, where people are like they're freaked out by it but it's not so scary like you know mers i mean if this had a mers like fatality rate of 30% politicians wouldn't be opening up right now but at 1% yeah. on average yeah they're they're literally doing that calculation i mean this is something that insurance people do all the time like what's the value of a human life um, they're doing this calculation, and they're, they're making judgments based on, you know, assessing values of those dead people's lives. But it's, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty when things, you know, when things really hit in the second wave and when some people are calling. I mean, the, the unknown factor for me, the, the really stochastic thing, what I did not expect at this point. I expected civil unrest later on. I expected civil unrest when the second wave hit and people started to get hungry because food supply chains were interrupted. So I was expecting civil unrest in like August. I did not expect the, the racial, you know, unrest, the civil rights unrest. That's one of those weird historical stochastic things that like, it's always been lurking there, and we've seen hints of it in the past. We've seen other riots in the U.S. based on, yeah. you know, police killings and and so on. But that, unfortunately, those are the big super spreader events that are going to take this second wave, you know, to eleven. Um, that's that's what's really Trevor Bedford. Yeah.
0: Trevor Bedford, I calculated, believe that for, like if we have fifty thousand people protesting around the United States, that each day of that of a protest of that size will produce uh, an additional three hundred to eleven 1, hundred casualties. They did say that that'll only reach up to about six percent of the casualties that are that are happening through this disease. But uh, no, and, it's and pretty, listen, no, it's pretty, I,
1: I've had, I've had some pretty pretty nasty arguments with people on on Twitter about this. Um, you know, people on the left who are like, well, the pandemic doesn't matter anymore, man, because this is all about, you know, fighting for racial injustice and, you know, fighting against racial injustice, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, dude, who's gonna die? Okay. I know
0: this is that's what drives me crazy.
1: Who's been dying so far? It's it's people of color. Okay. They're the ones who are gonna die. Not you, my, my dear, you know, tenured faculty, Berkeley professor
0: friends. <laughs> I know it, it, it's it's upsetting to me. I don't want to get too much into it, but just the fact that the 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 putative purpose of these riots seems so contrary to the impact on them, right? Mm-hmm. Because very often it is the areas that are that communities of color and underserved communities rely on that are most hard hit by these riots, which means, so you're, you're spreading the disease potentially in those communities. You're destroying resources that they need access to. Mm -hmm. Um, You're destroying businesses,
1: small businesses. businesses,
0: yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I don't
1: get it. We could have
0: a whole conversation about that.
1: No, Uh, No, no, no. Listen, this is something that, you know, I've been, vocal enough about this that I was actually banned from Twitter for a while (laughs) because listen, I I've worn a lot of hats in my Mm -hmm. life. I've done a lot of things. And among the things I've done is I've done some interesting intelligence related work in some pretty dangerous parts of the world. And I've seen insurgent groups and seen how they work. And, you know, I, (laughs) I, You know, Masood in, in the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan, like he's probably the greatest insurgent fighter, you know, rebel leader of all time, in my opinion. Um, and he was a genius at both strategy and tactics. And I keep asking these people, OK, you want a revolution. But do you know what a revolution really takes? Because I don't, think, I don't so, think you so. do. I think really what you want to do is you want to make a lot of noise and vent. And I- you can do that from home. On social media, like you're not achieving anything. And if you really want to achieve something, here is what you have to do to achieve it. And that's Josh. when that's that's when people shut the fuck up. I got to tell you, when you're like, okay, here is how you start a real insurgent um, revolution.
0: <laughs> I have this ongoing friend conversation with a good friend of mine, Stephen Gia, and basically, it's which is the you know I posted this on Twitter you know, when the Republic falls, does it fall to left-wing authoritarianism or right-wing authoritarianism? (laughs) And so my argument has been that I'm more worried about left-wing authoritarianism because they basically have more power in the media, more power in academia, more power in the bureaucracies of the government. Um, And his argument has been, yeah, but the the right has organized militias with lots of weapons. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, I would say there's a lot more, there's a lot more, uh, uh, low intensity violence from the left towards the right. But when the right is violent, it's much more costly. So lots of Nazis are getting punched, but when one Nazi decides to, to take something out, they kill 500 people with, (laughs) with the gun.
1: I mean, that's, that's rule number one, uh, (laughs) you know, in insurgency, like you side with the guys who have the bigger guns So 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 and and, and if you and if you really want to do this, I mean we can get into this shit if you want to, but (laughs) the only way this is gonna happen is if you know the the wannabe revolutionaries partner with some outside organization that has the skill set to take them over the top. And then you're talking about Maoist organizations and like some really scary groups of people. I mean, these are not nice guys.
0: No not at all. I mean there's no way to do this in a way that that brings the good out in either the right or the left. Yeah. Um, but I was watching the 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 Capitol Hill autonomous group and like how they're they're starting to you know, they have no police there and now they're starting to form their own police and try to enforce it. And people on the right are like, oh my God, it's 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 the it's the you know the it's it's animal farm. And so I watched some videos of these guys and I'm like, these guys seem completely incompetent and relatively harmless <laughs> and like they're LARPing. <laughs> and, and I'm like I don't know. I like, I guess my prior shifted more towards, yeah, I'm a little bit more worried about those those uh <laughs> militias in Idaho. <laughs> but I don't I mean, like it's 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 bad. It's bad either way. So um I believe it's one thirty in the morning where you are approximately. It is. It so is. So I'm gonna I,
1: sign off. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's been I was, great I,
0: talking to you. Good conversation. Thank you. I would love to to have another conversation with you. There's um I wanted to get into um I want to talk about your 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 kind of the ethnographic perspective you have, having been all around the world, um, and the people that you that you've been into, and and also what does this rise of Asia look like? Because this was already happening, and now if if it's true that Asia has some protection against COVID, and it's going to go as bad as you think it's going in the West, plus everything else that's happening in the West, like we're going to see a massive shift in geopolitical power and. So we already got into some social history discussions, but I, I'm very curious what you're seeing um, in Indonesia right now and how you're looking at that. So we'll save those for another conversation. But I just wanted Absolutely. to say you know, I mean, really I'd love to
1: post. talk about that. I've been, you know, tweeting about this, and you know, again, I need to find time to write a blog post. But um, you know, the World Bank last year before any of this was on anyone's horizon already was saying that Indonesia, for instance, was going to be the world's fourth largest economy by 2030. Mm -hmm. So think about what that means. I mean, we know about the U S we know about China. We know that India is coming up that puts Indonesia in number four. What that means is that Japan and every single European country is pushed down below that. Mm -hmm. This, this is a shift that, you know, hasn't happened in a couple of centuries. Um, the economist, you know, when I first started thinking about this seriously, was when I saw that economist chart where they put together the, you know, global economic center of gravity in terms of like trade and GDP and so on. And they have this little line that, you know, from about 1800 migrated toward Northwestern Europe and the US. And then starting in around 1990, it started to move back toward Asia. And what's going to happen now? Is with everything that's going on with this pandemic, it's going to move really quickly back toward East Asia. Yeah. And, and you know, it's going to have tremendous geopolitical effects. Um, you know, I, I have been thinking a lot about Turkey. Turkey's a really interesting country. I've spent a lot of time there. Um, I've actually driven across the entire country in a 1998 expedition we did. But um, so I know it pretty well. Um, Turkey is torn between its Asian East and its European West. Mm-hmm. So Istanbul is kind of like a European city. Yeah. But Ankara is a lot like a Central Asian city or a you know, Caucasus city. And I think what's going to happen with Turkey, Turkey for you know two decades or more has been banging its head against the door of Europe, asking to be let in. So it's been looking toward the West. I think this is going to be when it shifts over to the East and it embraces its Asian side. Um, I think no one's going to object to China's belt and road efforts Mm -hmm. anymore. I think the only countries that will object are the ones that are left out of that. And so that's, that's a pretty radical shift in
0: geopolitics. It's huge. It's huge. And I think some people are triumphant about this. And I think that it's it's scarier because say what you want about the United States, and we've done a lot of terrible things, but the CCP is no peach either.
1: No, I mean, absolutely not. It, listen, I'm not a huge fan of the Chinese Communist Party. I hate communism. I've, yeah. seen, I've seen the fallout from communism in, in ways that nobody in America has seen. The, the places I've been and the people I've worked with in Central Asia, you know, immediately post-Soviet Union um, in the 90s and the stories I've heard about show trials of, you know, family members who were government officials being thrown into prison to take the fall for mass corruption, um, you know, mass executions. People lined up in the middle of the night in front of a trench and shot in the back of the head dozens of them and opium trading you know through you know parts of southern Central Asia carried on by members of the, the military, the ex-Soviet military and members of the government and offshoring all that money into foreign accounts it, that level of corruption I mean no way I, I'm not in favor of communism in any of its guises and I've, I've been to Cambodia many times. And you know, I've seen, you know, the genius of Pol Pot's, you know, innovations there. <laughs> oh. um, I, I'm not a fan of, of communism at all. On the other hand, I'm also not a fan of mega corporate capitalism, uh, the way it's so great it in the U.S. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I was just tweeting something this afternoon about, like, okay, so, Saw that. The, the guys that you think of as being like these leaders of American capitalism and, you know, shining lights and, you know, people to aspire to be like Bezos and Benioff and Page and Bryn and, you know, Zuckerberg. Those guys did not accumulate that level of wealth by being nice human beings.
0: I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, so... I feel like you and I could go on talking for a long time, and uh, <laughs> I, and uh, <laughs> we've been on the, we've been on the line for two hours. It took us a half an hour to get set up here. Uh, it's late there, so thank you very much, and let's do this again soon. Would you, would you be up for that? Yeah, absolutely. Great talking so, to you. Okay, Spencer. Thank you so much. I'm gonna take care. Boom. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.